I want to read to you tonight from a couple scriptures, but I want to begin in the book of John. Jesus is speaking, but just prior to that, John really talks, he really gives more explanation. The book of John is a narrative, and so most of what he writes is events that happened with Jesus, to Jesus, and words that Jesus spoke and the responses to those words. John doesn't really elaborate much in his own voice. But there's a, he really departs from that and he explains and he talks and he really ministers to us. And he, he departs from the narrative voice and he begins to go into the expository voice or the explanatory voice. And it struck me today when I was reading it. We're in uh, John 12 here. And we know that some great things have just happened in the previous foregoing chapters. I referred last week to the resurrection of Lazarus and what occurred immediately upon that resurrection, they conspired to kill him. That's in verse 47 of chapter 11. And then in verse 12, chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus. We're going to come back to this here in another scripture from another gospel, but she anoints Jesus. And then in, chapter, in verse 27 of the same chapter, he foretells his death. And uh, then on down it says, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. He spoke, believe in the light while you have the light. And then the light hid himself from them. And then John begins to explain. Verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke saying, quote, The Lord, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And John continues, he says, For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah also said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts, and be converted, and I would heal them. These things Isaiah said because he had seen the Lord's glory and he spoke of him. Isaiah spoke from experience. He spoke from an encounter. Not from a, an idea. Not from a concept. He spoke from an experience. These things Isaiah said because he had seen the Lord's glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. What does it mean to love the approval of men 
That seems an easy answer, an easy thing to answer, right? We like to be accepted. We like it when people agree with us, when they think us smart, when they think us gifted, when they think us helpful, when they think us beautiful, when they think us influential or wealthy, accomplished. We like when people think good of us. We like the approval of men. It feels good. It's reassuring. But what does it feel like to have the approval of God? They loved the approval of men. They could not confess Jesus because they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. One translation says they loved the praises of men rather than the praises of God. And then John, immediately on the heels of that, he ties that to the very next words. He says, and they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said. So whatever Jesus is about to cry out and say, he is saying in response to people who love the approval of men rather than the approval of God who are so addicted to acceptance from their peers that they are unwilling to confess the phenomenon of Jesus and his activity in their world. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. What were the last words he said before he hid himself? For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. These things he spoke, and he went away and hid himself. Very next words that he speaks. Next red letters on the page. Jesus cried out. John remembers the way he spoke it. He was hollering out to this crowd Paralyzed by indecision, enamored by flattery, caught, unable to confess him, he cried out to them. And this is what he said I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, he has that or the one who judges him. The word I speak is what will judge him on the last day. So he says, I'm not doing the active condemning. I'm merely putting the word out there. Remember what he already said nine chapters earlier? This is the judgment 
that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Well, here he's saying, I'm not going around with an attitude of condemnation. I'm not judging you. He says, you have. You have in your possession what is going to judge you. Words have slipped into your ears and down into your heart. And you can never get those words out of you. You're as marked as Cain was. You're as defined by the word of God as those who received it. Words have fallen into your life. And you have that which is going to condemn you. You have the word. The implanted word which didn't bear fruit in your life. That word which was sent to bear fruit according to its kind instead just sits there as a constant reminder of what you could have had, of what you came so close to inheriting. It's, a, it's powerful to me to think that the judgment is something that we are in possession of. And that this possession that we have for one man is life everlasting. And for another man who can't believe it, who can't act on it, it is condemnation. He has that which, judge, which, he has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken. And it is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. He says you're going to have this word and this word is going to judge you because I didn't speak good ideas. I didn't speak rambling thoughts from the mind of man. I spoke under the anointing of the Father. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative. This cuts both ways, doesn't it? We don't want to be judged in the last day. But by the same token, we do want to receive the implanted word which is able to save us. We do want to receive what Peter says, the word by which we are begotten, the incorruptible seed of the word of God. Not only do we want to receive it, but we want to give it. We are under a mandate. We are required. Peter tells us we are born again of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. And then he says, if any man speaks, let him speak as the very mouthpiece of God, the very oracle of God. He says, we don't need men to speak men's thoughts. We need men to speak God's thoughts. It's the same thing John was saying when he says, you have no need for any man to teach you. For we have an anointing, and he will teach us. The spirit of truth in the world cannot see 
or receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. But he, the anointing, will be in you. The word of truth is going to lead and guide you into all truth. The spirit of truth lead and guides you into all truth. Amen. So I want to ask you, does the Lord use you, does the Father use you to put words in people's lives that are powerful enough to birth them into the kingdom or otherwise to judge them in the last day. Because Jesus couldn't make this claim except upon the prerequisite of a prior claim that he did not speak on his own initiative but only as the Father directed. What am I getting at? The word of his power is not a formula. The spirit of grace conveyed through words of transforming power. The rima and logos of God is not a formula. You cannot take something you have heard and parrot or repeat it apart from the anointing and expect it to have any positive effect on the hearer. Words are not special. Anointed words are special. Words are cheap. Words are worthless. Words are a dime a dozen, even less. Where words are many, sin is not absent. But the anointing is rare. It is special. There is no widespread revelation in our day. So whenever God starts to speak and the unction of an anointing starts to be woven into those words, then we sit up and take heed because lives are going to be changed by that word. If you feel ineffective, if you feel like your words have no power, then it's probably because they have no power. It's probably because they are unanointed. And you don't walk in humility, the kind of humility that Jesus walked in. For I did not speak. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the one who judges him. The word I, speak, I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For... Because I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and how to say it. What to say and what to speak, some translations say. Amen. It's a commandment that the Father gave him. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not a learned practice. It's a commandment. It's a mandate. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Now he's just said that they're going to be judged because he didn't speak his own initiative. And then he implies that he doesn't speak his own initiative because he has a command from the Father to only speak what he says and how he says to say it. And then he tells us that this commandment 
of moving in perfect synchronicity and obedience to the Father's command as to the what and to the how is eternal life. It is the invasion of God and His dominion into a world under judgment, into a world of death, into a world of impossibility. When people can confine themselves to that commandment to say, I can't say anything unless the Holy Spirit starts to speak. Jesus said, as I hear, I speak. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus sent the 72 out and he gave them authority and power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to perform various miracles. And when they operated in the immediacy of that, that, that command of the Father, that obedience to God, when they operated and functioned in that capacity, what, what did Jesus see? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What he was saying is that the kingdom of God and the teardown of the kingdoms of this world, the teardown of the kingdom of Satan is so fast that it looks like grease lightning. Changes can happen when people will accept this commandment. We call it eternal life, entering eternal death. Amen. This is a command he received from the Father. For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me, he has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You want to change somebody's life? You want to pull somebody back from the pit? Then you got to get this commandment. Because this commandment is eternal life. And what is the commandment? To do just what God is saying. Not any more, not any less. Not without him, not ahead of him, not behind him. Just what the Father is doing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. The problem is, this describes an incredibly vulnerable place. That is the end of Jesus' message. The problem is, is this commandment requires an incredibly vulnerable place. Requires that we step into a very vulnerable walk of submission. By vulnerable, what do I mean? There's no place for the flesh to get comfortable to relax. There's no fallback where if everything doesn't go right, at least I can just read my notes. We are obliged to understand that eternal life entering the world is conditional upon men being willing to obey this commandment to stay in perfect sync with God. Not ahead, not behind. Not to the right, not to the left. Not with extra, not with less. 
just absolutely dependent upon God. That is a vulnerable place to be because we can't take God as a child by the hand and take him where we want to go. We have to become sensitive. We have to become tuned in to the voice which the flesh cannot hear, to the pressures which the flesh cannot feel. Amen. To the calling which the flesh cannot hear. We have to become vulnerable to that so that we might grope after him and find him. And that's a vulnerable place. And somebody says, well, I've been born of the Spirit. I got that done with. That's not what my Bible says. In Romans 8, he says, as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. God's purpose when you were born of the Spirit was not to give you a super experience so that you could have pride and superiority over other people. His purpose was that eternal life would enter you and through you eternal life would enter the lives of many others. He wants eternal life to come into the world. But this is eternal life, a commandment to be completely obedient to the Holy Spirit as he moves, when he moves, how fast he moves, how slow he moves, how gentle he moves. And if you don't get that, then you're not giving the word that is going to beget people with the incorruptible seed of the word of God, and you're not giving the word that is going to haunt them and condemn them in the end, either to bring them to a place of repentance or to judge them in the last day. You're merely inoculating them. You're borrowing some of the echoes of spiritual realities and you're transplanting them into stale, lifeless forms, regurgitating them and hoping that they have the same effect. You're a man in search of a formula because you're a man terrified of relationship. What is the formula? It is where man says it's too vulnerable, it's too risky, it's too unsure, it's too insecure to have a relationship with God. So let's have recipes about him. Let's have words about him. Let's have songs. Let's do everything about him and we'll just leave him out of the picture. Is this not what Jesus was encountering in John 5 when he came to the Pharisees and he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are those which speak of me, but you will not come to me to receive this life. Do you see what he's saying there? They love the scriptures. They knew chapter and verse. They could flip through their Bible and point out this and point out that. They could spend all day discussing the nuances of interpretation and translation. And was it going to be from Nazareth or was it going to be from Bethlehem? And we know the prophet's going to be of the tribe of David. But recipes don't have life. The scriptures are only as good as they bring you into contact with the presence of God. With the God who is spirit. And if you come in contact with his presence, then you have touched 
that which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled concerning the word of eternal life. You have encountered the commandment made flesh. You've encountered this embodied obedience. This man, this humanity completely reconciled and at one with the spirit within him. You have encountered salvation and he spoke to you. And you received it. You walked in it. It's not a formula. It's a presence. So it was the old formulas that they loved. They loved to talk about God. They just didn't want to talk to God. They loved to, to talk about what he spoke, but they just didn't want to hear him speak. How many of you remember in the synagogue at Nazareth, recorded in Luke 4, it says Jesus stood up and turned to the place in Isaiah where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And it says that as he was speaking, they were marveling and they were saying, my, what gracious words he speaks. Where did he get this wisdom? And then he says that he finishes with those words that showed that it wasn't any longer a study about God, but it was God speaking to them. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they said amongst themselves, is this not Joseph's son? Are his brothers and sisters not here with us? And he began to speak to them and said, you will say to me, you will quote this parable to me, physician, heal yourself. And before it was over, before that church service was over, they had the minister out on the, on the brow of a cliff. And they were trying to push him off. That's what happens when the flesh encounters something that is no longer words about God, but is words of God being spoken right now with immediate consequence, with immediate anointing. When it's about God, it's like, wow, I wonder where he learned that. I'd like to learn that too. But then when he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it's like, how dare you? We don't actually want to encounter God. We want to talk about him. This is what Paul was speaking against when he said in Romans 2, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. It's the same thing that they said about those people who wouldn't believe, remember? His approval is not from men, but from God. So you got two options. You got the letter and you got the spirit. The letter and the spirit. Do we believe in the Bible? Do we believe in scripture? What's well, all scripture? It means letters, right? Script. But the devil quoted scripture. The devil stole and abused and perverted and twisted and mishandled the word of truth, didn't he? And it didn't make it special, didn't make it anointed because it was scripture. He was bringing the letter and he was disobeying the spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but inwardly of the heart. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. You see, they were taking pride in their circumcision. They kept encountering a God and a church 
that had spiritual power. They were encountering a Paul who walked into a room and discerned that there was a man who had faith to be healed, and he was healed. They kept encountering this God of power, this God of conviction, this God of spirit. They didn't like him. I'm talking about the Jews in Paul's day. And so you see Paul mounting this heated attack against circumcision. Why did Paul hate circumcision? Because it wasn't beneficial for the body or for health? Hmm? Because there was some intrinsic evil in it? No, certainly not. He wouldn't have circumcised Timothy had there been some intrinsic evil in it. Why would he come against it so strong? I submit to you that he hated circumcision because it was a formula. It was something that could be done with the hands of the flesh. They were encountering God in this new church that was exploding all across the empire and they, wouldn't, they didn't feel the obligation to respond to that call, to ex- respond to that experience because they could pat themselves on the back and say, I've already taken care of my God duty. I got circumcised. I'm part of the covenant. He hated circumcision because it was a substitute. And the Lord hates every substitute that we choose in place of a relationship of obedience to this command that Jesus lived by. Church can become your circumcision substitute. Going to meetings can become it. Reading scripture can become that. Ministering to people and hearing yourself, it can all become it. You get to a place where you don't feel the obligation to live on the edge of your seat, to respond to God whenever he speaks, to live, move, and have your being in him. You get to a place where you don't feel that anymore. It's because you have told yourself you're okay. You are subconsciously living by a substitute. You are living by the law. You may even take your your experience of rebirth, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that may become your substitute. Oh no, I don't have to follow the Holy Spirit. I don't have to walk in grace. I don't have to obey God. I don't have to develop a prayer life. I don't have to learn to be sensitive to God because I was born again. Well, you're putting circumcision out as a reason, just like they were. You're putting your your belief system out. I don't have to because I already. You've gotten your formula. Amen. But you're losing your God because eternal life is contained in the immediacy of a risky relationship where you do what he says, how he says it. And you're willing to make mistakes doing it, but you're not willing to try any other route. Amen. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. What is he talking about? He's talking about the presence He's talking about the presence. Just what Moses said. Don't send us unless your presence goes with us. Just what he said in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God and if sons, then heirs. And how do we know we're sons? If we're being led by the Spirit. 
So when he says our adequacy is from God, what he's saying is we don't feel sure in our flesh, but we feel sure that the presence of God is here with us. And in that sureness, we can do anything. We can walk on the water. We can walk through walls. We can get up and change the world. And we won't know how. We won't know if we did it right or did it wrong. We won't know if it was even possible. We're just standing there saying, all I care about is I just want to be in God's presence. I just want to feel his presence. Oh, God, you can send me to Pharaoh. You can send me to the Red Sea. You can send me into Egypt. You can send me into the wilderness. You can send me to the rock. You can send me to the mountain. It doesn't matter. Your presence is still with me, and that's all I need. Amen. Hallelujah. We're not sure how we should do it. We're not sure of ourselves doing it, but we're sure of the presence that is there with us while we do it. And we're not perfect. We're not good at this. If we were good at it, then we could start taking pride as if our adequacy was from ourselves. But we're not adequate in ourselves. We stand in fear and trembling, Paul said. Do you hear what he said there? He said, my preaching and my teaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. But he says it's the demonstration of the spirit and power. The two are not mutually exclusive. One requires the other. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. We are not servants of the letter. I feel like God wants to set some people free from their servitude to the letter tonight. There are people in this room who have adopted a learned formulaic approach to their walk with God. Because vulnerable obedience and dependency was just too risky. They don't have to limit themselves to what God is doing, when he's doing it, how he's doing it. Because they are servants of the letter. And they're so grateful for the letter. They wish somebody could spell it all out for them. They wish somebody would give them every detail of how to raise their children, what discipline looks like, how long it lasts, what the response should be. They wish somebody could just spell out every detail. They wish somebody could tell them how to love their wife. They wish somebody could tell them how to witness. They wish somebody could just tell them everything. Because it doesn't all come from within. The wellspring has dried up. He stood and cried out with a loud voice, saying, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being, it all comes from within, would flow rivers of living water. This he spoke about the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't flow like a, a, a river of living water out of their innermost being. It doesn't flow. It doesn't flow at all. It trickles. It drops every now and again. It kind of sweats precipitates from the ceiling every now and again. Oh, what was that? I think I just got something cold on my brow. But there's no flow, amen, because it's all boxed up. It's all partitioned and boxed up 
into safe little niches and boxes and pigeonholes and formulas and recipes and binders. And God's nowhere in it. My school is going to go like this. And my, my discipline is going to go like that. And our chores are going to go like this. And God loves order. God loves order. He loves a schedule when it gives plenty of space for his spirit. But your order and your schedule is no substitute for a relationship with God. What he wants is your heart. What he wants is you to be led by the spirit. And if you can't be led by the spirit, then you can't claim that you're a son of God. And if you have a lifestyle that precludes the ability to be led by the Spirit, I suggest you better get out of that lifestyle because it's precluding your relationship with God. And your relationship with God is your salvation for eternity. If you don't have that commandment, then you don't have eternal life. If it's not a reality. Now we're all learning. We're all faltering. We're we're in this journey at different stages. But oh... Those who should be fearful are the ones who are comfortable. Those who should be fearful are the ones who've got it made, who understand it, top to bottom, backwards and forwards. And, yeah, it's no big deal. You know. Does it all come from within? I ask you, are you a minister of the letter or are you a minister of the spirit? When you speak to your child, does the zeal of God burn inside of you? I'm not talking about how harsh you are. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. If there's not a deep flow of love in your life, if love doesn't pour out of you, then you are not born of the Spirit. Because that's what the Spirit did. It came and poured the love of God into our hearts. Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We didn't know how to love. We didn't know how to show people that they meant something to us. We didn't know how to lay down our lives. But the Holy Spirit poured in and a geyser of love poured out. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then it's repeated again says it in, in John 13, the very next chapter from the one we're reading. Then he says it in John 15. Then it's said three times in the epistles of John. I grew up in a home where there was so much love. Love. So much love. Love in every expression. Love in, in genuine interest in your well-being. Love in the banter and and play of children with parents. Love in the chiding and correction. Love, love, love. You, You think God wants you to be one of these dehydrated Christians who walks around? I am a minister of the letter. I look like a mummy. I don't express any moisture because I've been dehydrated to be very principled and I'm shriveled and sharp and pinched but I know how to be principled you're not born of God everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God 
He who loveth not loveth not God, for God is love. If you don't know how to love, if you don't know how to express love, you say, well, how do I express love? The Lord disciplines those he loves. Therefore, discipline is God's expression of love. No. The Lord has to regrettably discipline those who he so abundantly loves. And no discipline is pleasant at the time, but his love is pleasant. In his presence, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So his love is our lifestyle. His discipline is to get us back into that place where we can enjoy his presence. The sum total of our interaction with God is not discipline. If it is, then it's not God. There needs to be love. You say, well, 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 I thought we were supposed to have agape, but not phileo. No. No, we're not supposed to use phileo as a substitute for agape. But if we've got agape, then we certainly have phileo. We may have phileo without agape, but we sure cannot have agape without phileo. What is phileo? In the Greek, phileo is affection. Does the Bible require affection of us? Paul commands us, be kindly affectionate toward one another in brotherly agape. Greet one another with holy affection, a holy kiss. It means a show of affection. That may be a hug, that may be a pat on the back, that may be a warm handshake, But what he's saying is you must show people it's not the thought that counts. It's not the thought all sealed up in little icebergs of of principle or dehydrated mummies of perfection. That doesn't count for anything. It's the feeling that expresses itself, that presses itself out of the mummy and makes them into a child of God. That's what counts. When it becomes words, when it becomes a gesture, when it becomes a smile, a handshake, when it becomes a, an I love you. If there's not affection and warmth in your, in your life, if you don't show that to those around you, you cannot call yourself a Christian. You may be a minister of the letter, but you are not a minister of the Spirit because the Spirit's primary purpose is to pour out love in our lives. The Spirit brings love. The Spirit brings affection. Amen. It's a spring of water. The prophet Isaiah says, likens the Lord to us, and he says that the, that the Lord shall bounce us on his knees like a father does his child. He likens the Lord's love to us like the father's love, of showing that kind of affection. And, and some people say, you know, I... I I understand, but you're one of those gushy people, and I'm one of those mummies. Mommies or mummies? Make sure you know the difference. But you're one of those gushy people, and I'm, I'm just not that way. Well, good news for you. That's why we've got repentance, because you need to repent, and you need to seek God until you are that way. Because if you don't show love, if you can't show love to your children, to your spouse, to your brothers and sisters then you don't have love. Because love is not an idea. It's a heartbeat. It's an action. We do not love in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. Amen. So what kind of minister are you? We are not ministers of the letter. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
But if the ministry of death in, in letters engraved on stone came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how much will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So what was the letter, the ministry of, what was the letter that he was referring to? It was the law. It was obedience to God without the relationship with his presence. But the letter is a murderer. The letter is not the second best thing to a walk in the Spirit. He does not say the letter is second best. That's what I would have said. He does not say the letter is insufficient. That's what I would have said. He says the letter kills. It kills hope. It kills life. It kills mercy. It kills grace. It kills love. But if there is the Spirit, though it may pierce us, though it may impale us on its sword, we know the heart behind it. We feel the presence of the God who is love. And we say, yea, though he slay me, I trust this. I can believe in this. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So what is the most important thing? What is the most important thing? Is the most important thing to stick in your principles and hope to sprinkle it with a little love on the top? Like powdered sugar, here's my love. Is that the most important thing? What is the most important thing? Well, there's nothing most important. Oh, actually there is. <clears throat> so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of love, of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. But above all this, above everything else, says Paul to the Colossians, what's the most important thing? Above all this, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What's the result of love? Trust. What's the result of trust? Peace. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So everything else is important, but what is more important than love? Let's look at Peter's words in his first epistle, his first chapter. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, for a sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently from the heart. What was the object? I mean, that is a unique way to put it. What was the object? What was the goal of the truth? Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your hearts for a sincere love of the brethren, Love one another deeply from the heart. So the truth came to clean out all the things that would keep you from loving.
The truth came to get rid of competition, to scrub away suspicion, to heal all the wounds and scars so that you could learn how to love again. That's why God sent forth his truth. Same reason he sent forth his spirit to pour out his love in your hearts. And then he says in 1 Peter 4, you know, it's, it's right on the tail end of that familiar scripture. Above all else, keep on fervently loving one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't cover up a multitude of sins. It actually heals them. It actually gets rid of them. It actually solves them. Love is the magic elixir. Love is the antidote for a world under judgment. Love is the antidote, the antibiotic for the disease of conceit, for the imperfection of humanity. Love is the only reason we can make it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and it is not arrogant. It does not act rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth because it's the truth that purifies your heart for a sincere love. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. Love believes all things. Are you a sucker for believing in people? You better be because if you're not, you're not a Christian. You don't have love. Because love makes you believe. It makes you believe all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We fail all the time. We blow it all the time, but love never fails. If, if there is always love, then there is never failure. Because love never fails. Every failure can be identified as a loss of love, a lack of love. A diminishment of love, a forgetfulness of love, losing the first love because love never fails. And when we repent, when we're old and dehydrated Christians and we've lost it and we can't find our way, all we have to do is get back to what we felt at the beginning, get back to our first love. But now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Faith is believing what God can do. Hope is trusting that it's about to happen. But love is going ahead and doing it. Love is when faith and hope finally come together into a fountain of living water, into a spring of eternal life, into a commandment you can't disobey, into a commandment to give what God tells you to give when he tells you to give it commandment to walk in love, to walk in the spirit. I could go on and on and on and on but God is calling you to stop serving the letter because you're killing the life of God. God is calling you to start learning what it means to love. Thank you Jesus. If you don't feel the kind of love you want to feel, well, good news is just obey God. He says thou shalt love. He wouldn't tell you to do something you can't do. So sit there and say, God, I want to love. I don't feel the love I want to feel. Please pour out your love in my heart through your Holy Spirit. Help me to love my spouse like you want me to love them. Help me to love my children like you want me to love them.
We need to have love. We need to have care. No more of this dehydrated service. No more of these ministers of the letter. Oh, the world is full of ministers of the letter. And they point out what's wrong, but they have no, they have no life. They have no solution. They have no love to change it. Hallelujah. Somebody says, well, I don't know how to do it. I've, I've, I've lived my whole life, and I wasn't shown that kind of love. My father and my mother didn't hold me. They didn't kiss me. They didn't hug me. They didn't tell me they loved me. Well, repent of that old dehydrated world and the death that comes with it. Repent of it tonight. Repent of it. And say, Jesus, you're my example. You're my father. It does not say this is how we know love. Jesus thought about love and, had, and felt love in his heart for us. It says he demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, when we didn't deserve it, he took action to show it. Can we all say that together? When we didn't deserve it, he took action to show it. He demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, when we were unworthy, when we didn't deserve it, when there was nothing in us that seemed redeemable, he said, I'm going to stake it all on love. Love is so powerful that all those filthy sinners who don't deserve it are going to look and see that there's something worth getting clean for after all. Somebody loves them. Hallelujah. So you're not accustomed to showing affection. You're not accustomed to showing love. You say, I don't know how. Well, if you did know how, it wouldn't be love. Love is always an amateur expression. If you've learned how to show love, then it's no longer love. It's just a formula, isn't it? Love is what pushes you to do something that you don't really know how to do, but you go ahead and do it anyway because you got to do it. You just can't live with the thought. You need to show love. Show love to your spouse. Show affection. Show warmth. Show love to your children. Show love to your parents. We don't need the dehydrated world. We don't need the, the wotan stoicism. We need warmth. We need affection. Paul said that a, a hallmark of the apostasy in the end of time is going to be that people are without natural affection. You've joined the apostasy if you can't show affection. You're a child. You need to show love to your parents. You need to show love to God. Some of you can't weep before the Lord. You can't raise your hands. You can't express your love to God because you've never hugged your dad. You've never hugged your mom. You don't know what it means to show love. And so you come into the presence of God. It's like, why would I do that? You need to beg God, give me tears. Give me sorrow. Give me love. Give me kisses. Give me hugs. Give me a hand to hold and give me a gratitude for that hand. Let that wall of pathetic protection come down. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, I want to love like you loved. Jesus, I want to love like you loved. Praise you, God. Put your love in my heart, oh Jesus. Help me to demonstrate my love. 
Help me to demonstrate your love. Make me somebody who feels. Make me somebody who shows those feelings. Hallelujah. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Become a minister of love. Amen. Become a servant of the Spirit. Amen.